You're listening to the sixth episode of Season 4 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm What Remains of Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for or to or about women of various descriptions. Mostly it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were systematically messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It's also about depression, words, and music, especially depression. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident over and over again in slow motion. Episode 6, Moonlight. Warning, this podcast episode contains graphic discussion of sexual satisfaction both inside and outside committed relationships. Viewers are encouraged to thank me later. Having used light-hearted humor and joking around to get the attention of the pretty girl at my work with the previous song, which she'd played on the CD player in the lab while working, I was feeling pretty good. After that, she and Mario came out to see me play an open stage, asking, Is this really your scene? With it clearly not really being a scene she liked much. A darkened bar or cafe on a non-weekend night, and a bunch of us singing songs for a few people listening. But then she said, So... When are you going to write me the next song? And so I wrote this one. It was a bit more serious and complimentary, I thought. Yeah, well, I wrote you this song because you wanted one. I pulled the tune from my pocket where I keep them. But when it came down to the words, I walked into the But after listening to the song just once, apparently having tired of me between asking for the song and me delivering it, she said, I like the first one better. And when we ate lunch together the next day, we were joined by a new hire named Dave, who'd done some professional wrestling. He was, obviously, the size of a truck. And as he and she joked and I increasingly became a third or fifth wheel, depending how you count it, I noted that somehow two or three more buttons on her shirt had very accidentally just come undone somehow, and a vast expanse of warm, rounded cleavage was suddenly on display. So many buttons were undone, in fact, that it looked more like a wardrobe malfunction than anything that could possibly be passed off as flirting. I quietly told her, I think you've got a button undone there, and she carefully ignored me and leaned forward to talk some more to Iron Dave Goche. I didn't take my next break with them, obviously. Even as a brethren guy, I knew that I was probably supposed to have tried to hit that like a lazy pitch over the plate before Big Dave had even finished his employee orientation package. But I was trying to get to actually know women, 
feel them out to see what kind of people they were, and if we could stand each other for any length of time, rather than start things by checking out the lay of the land immediately. I got the chance to discuss with Evan some of what I've been thinking about lately on this podcast. So when I was in high school, I, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't have any religious beliefs. If you had pressed me, I, I was pretty happy when I found out about the word agnostic because I thought, oh, that, that's fair. Like, I'm, I'm not sure. And that seems to describe me well. Um, and so the idea that a religious belief was going to influence my sex life just made no sense at all. Or mm-hmm. maybe more broadly than sex, right? Than my romantic life at all. Like you were supposed to treat people well. That's that's. It's not like that's a unique principle to Christianity. But I don't. <laughs> it's, I feel like I'm bragging, but I'm like I feel like I received my fair share or more of female attention while I was in high school, um, and you know I didn't see anything wrong with anything I was doing. Um, and then fast forward a few years, now I'm a Christian. I'm trying to make it work with one Christian woman. I'm trying to follow through on what you might call traditional Christian values. Yeah. You're dealing with her because you think she's a keeper and you're actually waiting. Yeah. So as I've gotten older, I've thought, you know, a a relationship is supposed to be about, I mean, not that I ever literally thought it was supposed to be about just sex or anything like that, but it's supposed to be about something very big, right? Like you're supposed to um, grow from being with somebody and you're supposed to hopefully help them grow as well. Um, and, you know, you want to start to put your your two families together, like that's sort of the stage I'm at. I'm trying to get to know her family. She's trying to get to know mine. And and we're trying to put our lives together and figure out, you know, what you're going to do in the future. And all of these things are really awesome and cool. And I think that they're supported um, by these some of these what we call traditional values. I don't know how much I like that term, but by these traditional values. And that's fine. Uh, they're also supported by other people. I mean, we're, we don't run a monopoly on, you know, being a monogamous, you know, loyal partner uh, in Christianity. But um, at the same time, there's other people my age who are, you know, seeing that polyamory is the way to go that, you know, you want to have lots and lots of partners and they don't, I think that what they're missing is that the depth of having a monogamous relationship can really transform you and can really transform your partner into something more than you are now, right? You can really attain some potential. It sounds like what you're saying, because I'm going to reflective listen the crap out of you here. Um, <laughs> it sounds like you're saying, Evan, that although you may have been sexually active in your teens, the depth of a relationship that you're able to have with an, an educated and intelligent adult woman that is not sexual yet is much, much deeper, in fact, and you find it more rewarding and worth spending the time. Yeah, I agree with all that. That that, that all checks out. And see, if I say this, it's suspect because I was, you know, indoctrinated. So I, I think it actually has more weight because you've tried more than one approach to it and you thought from more than one perspective on it. And this makes sense to you. There's a lot of Christians who grew up Christian and the, their parents are Christian and they go to the church that their parents went to. And as you grow up, uh, you know, I think that when you deal with non-Christians or or non-religious people at all, um, they sort of discount. They say, well, you you were brought up in that. You were indoctrinated. You know, you only think what your parents think. I found that, you know, I, I can pretty quickly shut those people down. <laughs> I, you know, I, I randomly have an advantage for growing up without um, without a church, uh, without uh, having a Christian life, because I get to say, well, no, I, I'm choosing this. Like, I, I came to this later in my life, um, and I think it's good. Uh, when I was in high school, I was sexually active, and I had I mean, I, I didn't have a lot of sexual partners, but I had a lot of romantic uh, interest from women. 
who I was also romantically interested in. So that was fine. Um, and, uh, and it, it was, it was, you know, exciting. It was fun. It was, it was fine, but it, it didn't really benefit my life in any deep way, in any meaningful way. Um, certainly not to the extent that I've, I think I've found some success in trying to date one person and stay loyal. And I, I keep mentioning staying loyal. Like I think even when I was younger, I knew you were supposed to be loyal. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, that was never on the table as, as in, so far as, is this an ambiguous value, but waiting until marriage, like that was, I, I don't know that I ever really would have considered that when I was younger. No, nobody ever told me I was supposed to. And then when I, when you're told like, oh, it's your choice, you do whatever you want. I was like, well, I know what I want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't, you know, I, supposing I can find someone who's willing, uh, yeah. then, then, then that'll be an easy enough decision for me. Anson did me the favor of a last minute Zoom chat on a very difficult topic. So I, I come from a faith tradition where waiting was encouraged, um, strongly encouraged. Mm-hmm. And um, I did, you know, much of my single adult life was abstinent, um, not all of it. You know, as a young adult, I think people didn't really give me a hard time about it. A lot of people thought it was admirable or maybe quaint, you know, kind of mm-hmm. cute. But as you get older, people do tend to think that that's, you know, eccentric. Yeah, if if not if not patently, you know, ridiculous mm-hmm. or absurd. Um, that movie kind of came out, didn't it? The forty year old version. And yeah, the, the punchline yeah. of that movie is the forty year old version. Although, I I do think that um, you know, for people from different cultures, um, there's a pretty big difference between you just ne- it never occurred to you to have sex by forty, or you never managed to have sex by forty, or if you've refused sexual opportunities up until forty for religious reasons, I think there's quite a difference there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, if if we are honest. Um, some people don't have sex because they just simply haven't had the opportunity or, or they aren't willing to go to certain lengths to create the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, other people, you know, I mean, it would be easy. You know, it, it would be simply a matter of saying yes. A lot of women and I were playing entirely different sports, I think. Embarrassing to show up at the golf course with your pool cue like that. To the hockey game with your tennis racket. I, I have spent a lot of time at universities in the last few years because I've, I've been a student that whole time. And I think that there probably are plenty of students who are not part of hookup culture, who are not very loud about it. Um, and it's because, you know, the, the standard or the norm uh, is is this idea that you are part of the hookup culture, that that's what, you know, that's a large part of why you wanted to come to school to begin with, etc. For me, hookup culture, not yet called that, was hard to believe. It was hard for me to imagine that it was real. It was an upside-down, topsy-turvy world, apparently, in which walking around holding hands was very serious and committed and often asking too much of a woman. But a casual hand job was proffered freely in the kitchen or a blowy on the couch, my roommates related to my unbelieving ears. Really? That had happened in our kitchen while I was at work? That had gone on on my couch over there? When I was going to Waterloo, we used to have a joke. We'd walk around campus and you'd point like, right there? Do you think somebody's done it right there? You know, at the different sort of on-campus locations. So couches seemed like, you know, an ideal place that somebody mm-hmm. would do it. But maybe and just that, down. That's the culture, right? Like it's... Yeah, it's, it's, it's Friday night. It's probably happening. 
and the world we live in up until recently, that was also quite a bit of high school thing too. Yeah, I think in high school, there were a lot of people who wanted to talk about sex because they wanted to signal a lot. Like, I think there was a big part of like, oh, you know, I'm I'm this far along in maturity. I'm this far along in, you know, getting along with, I mean, I'm thinking guys here. I, I don't think a lot of women, perhaps the, the female students were talking about it too, but not to me. But in university, like nobody cares, right? right? Like everybody thinks it's happening and everybody really cares. I mean, like certainly they care, but it's not like you can brag in quite right. the same way. Um, because as you said, it, it's a lot more commonplace here. You and don't so go into even a postgraduate the... class and say, I had sex today. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it doesn't really, it doesn't really. In, in know, high school, but... it's, would you say that it's a rite of passage for male students and along with telling people that you got your driver's license, um, kind of letting people know and not, not saying for the first time, but basically saying like, well, I had sex again and did a bunch of sex things. Um, I know that when I was in high school. I absolutely felt like I was in grade 10. And this is so crazy to me because like these stories, I'm like 15 years old, right? Yeah. And I, I remember thinking then like, I'm going to be the last person who ever, you know, does different uh, different things with, with women, you know. And then like years later, you find out all those people you thought were were, were doing a bunch of things. It, it was pretty exaggerated and mm-hmm. and stories weren't quite true. And, you know, it's, so I think that, that that's why I'm saying I think there's a lot to it that's a signal, and the the, the the reason I'm saying that is I think there were a lot of people lying as well. Yeah. Like and so it you know it wasn't really about having some sort of an experience. It was about you know flaunting like a peacock. Right. Um, Image. The '90s dating scene was apparently a place where people were naked together the same day they met, but didn't share anything too private about themselves for a month or so when talking. It just made no sense to me. So I decided to try to get the whole discussion out on the table, so to speak, and hear what different people had to say about hookup versus purity culture, and what ground might possibly lie between the two. I found it surprisingly hard to even outline the topic, and the people I spoke with about it fell on different sides of the line between the two, with crossover here and disagreement there. Certainly no shortage of contradictions and wanting to have it both ways. It's a very personal and awkward topic, but we all did the best we could to discuss it without embarrassing ourselves or each other. Me, being me, I found I had to deflate the intensity of the subject matter by, quite contrary to my upbringing and church community, discussing it in a fairly irreverent and light-hearted way. Here's how I decided to start. I was going to look at the two cultures in terms of the fear and the claim. Each one suggested that you needed to conduct your sex life their way, and if you didn't, They had a warning or fear to give you, and a claim of why their way was going to be worth it in the end. Let's start in my home court, purity culture. It's my own culture, so I think I will call it virgin star magic culture if I feel like it. The view held by the Christians I knew growing up wasn't simply that promiscuity, which they call fornication, was bad or foolish or something you should really try to avoid, cut down on, or stop doing if you were doing it, but that you really wanted to be virgins on your wedding night. Nothing else would do. There were some brethren couples who proudly told everyone that when the priest said, you may now kiss the bride, the two were kissing in front of everyone with a license to do so for the very first time. Now that wasn't everybody, of course. And people who converted to Christianity late or had that much-vaunted virginity taken from them without their consent 
couldn't live out this thing at all. That fell to those of us who were raised like that from birth. Michael Vetter told me that he felt he went into marriage having not broken but having heavily bruised his carefully kept virginity. First, the fear. Virgins are magic culture feared that if you had sex with various people, you were ruining not only the eventual fun but also the specialness and longevity of your more mature relationship later on. Courtney said in a previous episode that she's glad she waited, because when she had sex for the first time with her husband Ben, it went with all those other, not only firsts, but onlys, all shared with only the one guy. Her only guy. Courtney said she was entirely free of comparisons, meaning, I think, that she felt their virginity made she and Ben blank slates upon which to start writing their own sexual story together, starting with chapter one. Courtney felt she could give Ben the space and time to figure out her body and his and what worked for them at leisure without feeling he was coming up short by comparison to a single other man, either in terms of performance or anatomy. So the fear of this position is that entering the relationship you intend to take to the grave with your sexual discovery being by that point in time old news already chewed gum would seriously spoil it. Courtney has had sex, conceived, had a miscarriage, given birth to three kids, raised them, bought her first home, and done a thousand other things, all only ever with Ben. And I think she feels that to do otherwise would have wrecked all of that. And the claim. The claim is, if you wait to have sex only with your spouse, that sex is going to be better. Not necessarily more intense, but more comfortable and lasting and trusting and more tailor-made, custom-fitted only for you. A collaboration from start to finish. You will discover your own and each other's sexualities in unison, and you will match, will be mated to each other in the simplest, purest, most bone-deep way possible without having a team of random other people in bed with you, so to speak. Your union will be unique. Needless to say, this view is somewhat more popular among women. Anson doesn't really agree, arguing somewhat for the other side. One of the things that's come out in discussions with people is that they were sort of told, for the, the Christian uh, approach to it, that you abstain to make the sex better once you're married. And a lot of people feel that that may not really be true. Um, I think it can be true. But I don't think that it's a it's a guarantee, you know, as with other I mean, I hate to describe it as a skill, but for lack of a better term. Also, needless to say, since, since before, before the, the dawn, dawn of recorded, recorded history, history, we have had men who kept apart from sexual congress with women entirely. And we were so impressed with them and their unnatural control and differentness that we saw them as very much apart from regular men viewing them as shaman, monks, priests, and so on. Of course, some of them are just gay. I didn't get what Anson was saying at first when he mentioned the theory that if sex is a primary means of forming strong, intimate bonds with a long-term partner, and you keep on bonding and breaking that bond, bonding and breaking that bond with a long string of people, 
you can soon burn out that act's intended function and not only be very able to thoughtlessly engage in sexual congress with people without feeling it to be significant, nor said people themselves either, you could potentially become someone who, despite talking for hours into the night under a starry, starry sky and then making sweet, sweet love with someone you are trying to form a long-term relationship with, somehow fails to enjoy the usual bond normally created by lovemaking of that kind. You could have what is essentially nothing more than an intense session of mutual masturbation with the other person's body only subbing in for your own good right hand. I also think that, you know, the way our bodies work, the way we're wired, there, there tends to be emotional bonding with, you know, the release of certain hormones. But I'm told, or I've read, you know, that can kind of lessen over time if there's a greater number of partners. I don't have any proof that that's true, but I suspect there's some truth to it. What um, would that result in? That a person's giving more of a generalized, shall we say, performance as opposed to putting all of his eggs in the one basket, the one woman? I think the, the lessened propensity for bonding. Okay. You burn out the bonding part of it. It just, just becomes the act and it's not doing its thing where it bonds the two into one flesh. Right. Yeah. And if you, if you are less bonded, I mean, ostensibly, right. So you could, you could have sex with a partner that you really care about, mm-hmm. that you're deeply in love with. And, and that's an emotional experience. And so afterwards, you, you know, perhaps maybe it wasn't physically as intense, right. But, but the emotional, mm-hmm. you know, the overall experience, you might describe it as just really wonderful, right. Conversely, you know, you could have like a, re- a very physically intense experience, but there's no emotional bonding. And, you know, you might kind of walk away like, oh, well, that was nice while it lasted, you know, uh-huh. not, not a big deal. I really don't think that we have the capacity to be truly objective about these things. Right. Um, also, I have found, I really believe that the way that you feel about a sex partner on any, any given day, that will play a large part of how you describe your sexual experiences with that person. If it's someone you're no longer with that you no longer care for in that way or someone that you are angry with, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's this tendency, oh well, and the sex wasn't that good anyway or you know, I don't know why we do that. I don't know if that's kind of a self-soothing thing or or but but I I think it's a real phenomenon. Someone told me that he used the sex life as a bit of a thermometer for the overall relationship health of the marriage. And I don't know if that's wise or not, not being married. He was basically saying that if the sex is not working and there's a problem, it's probably a sign that that the relationship is not working. And if the relationship is working, they will probably find a way to make the sex work. I don't know if those two things are equatable, though. I think there could be some truth to it, but but I also think that we come to relationships, we come to marriages with different priorities. Mm. And so, you know, in evangelical circles, in my youth, you know, great sex was something that was a high priority. There was almost this, maybe not even almost, there was this belief that if you were chaste, if you, if you had a, a, you know, sort of a pure, a godly, pure mindset in terms of your sexuality, that your inheritance, you know, with the marriage w- would be this awesome, spectacular sex that, that, you know, it was, it was a direct result of the fact that you had been chased. Right. I sense that maybe you don't, you don't agree with this anymore. Maybe. I, I think it's far more complicated than that. I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
we talk about purity culture and I don't like that term because I think it's it has become kind of a catch-all expression used to kind of attack the notion that there is to be or that there should be uh, chastity or kind of this disdainful assessment about purity. Like purity isn't really a thing. It's not something mm-hmm. that we should strive for. I, I think that, you know, again, like my belief is that God does call us to be pure. Now, what that looks like, I think reasonable people can disagree, but I do not think that just because you abstain or just because you don't look at porn or just because you don't have lascivious thoughts, you know, about the girl sitting in front of you, you know, in the pew, I don't think that that's a guarantee that you're going to have earth shattering, soul moving sex. I, I, I just don't believe that. Or even that you are um, pure in some spiritual sense. I don't, I think that one of the lessons in the Bible is that the goal is not to simply abstain and remove things, but to also grow and become more as well as a person. It's not just, I don't look at porn, therefore I'm purer than someone who does. I think it's more, I have talked to Christians who don't swear, you know, yeah. very, very virginal young Christians who don't swear and heard them say things that as far as I were, was concerned, were depraved. And they never used a swear word. They never said anything in a vulgar way, but they said they communicated something really weird. And it's not because of what they were doing. It's, it's not how they said it. It's what they were thinking. And I think that, that, yeah. that that's a thing. Yeah, for sure. Anson didn't get into it, but I grew up being told that if you married someone who'd had a period of meaningless, easy, readily available, casual sex, if your eventual relationship struggled at all, and your married sex became less simple, easy, readily available, or meaningful, that worldly person you'd married would be far, far, far more likely to cheat on you. To reach out casually for some simple, easy, readily available sex with some random person other than you, just like he or she had engaged in before you. Purity culture virgins are magic, folks, usually take a pretty dim view even of masturbation, associating it with addiction to eye-wateringly exotic hardcore porn and general brain rot. Michael Vetter has raised his sons to view self-pleasure as not only unnatural and wrong, but very bad for you. As a youth, about the, I don't know, the third or fourth time after I had been playing with myself and had encountered the fact that an issue came forth from my body, um, I was still trying to figure out what was going on. I hadn't yet gone to the library and looked up and tried to figure... Didn't even know the word for it. Um, I hadn't gone to the library, which I did later, and looked up everything that I could possibly find. Um, One for the information, two for the images. Um, But at the time, the AIDS pandemic was, was rampant, sweeping through the world, and everybody was talking about it, and... I knew vaguely that it had something to do with sex um, or something sexual. But, of course, nobody would tell you what, as as a kid, nobody would tell you what what it was about. And I had this, this guilty thought that maybe what I was doing was the very thing that caused AIDS and I was going to get AIDS and then everyone would know. It was terrifying. It didn't stop me from doing what I was doing. In later years, I think in my 20s, I wrote a poem about it, which I will quote for you. I watched my heart corrupt 
within the turning of a worm. I flirted with perversities for which I have no terms. Banished little virtue weeps, one bitter tear burns down her cheek, and I am left with nothing, 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 and the beast. In my late teens and early twenties when I was single, which was all too much of the time, Every now and then, some supposedly well-meaning Christian man about my age, or in some cases quite a bit older, would take me aside and solemnly ask, just like it was his business, Do you struggle with masturbation? This annoyed me, so my f**k off and leave me alone answer, calculated to express my disinterest in discussing my sex life with this persistent wanker, was to simply say, right there in the entrance to the meeting hall or the parking lot at the Bible conference or wherever the awkward conversation with the weirdo had started up, no, actually, with practice, I've gotten quite good at it. I never had any of them try to continue the conversation past that point. It was yet another trick I learned from staunchly anti-masturbatory Michael's family. Shut down the conversation before it gets going through performative shamelessness when people are trying to shame you. It's like when my mom would tell me, It's 10 p.m. Where are you going? And I'd say, Well, I thought maybe I'd pick up some heroin on the way to the brothel. Unlike the solemn-faced men in the meeting hall asking if I struggled with masturbation, my mom would laugh and leave me alone to take a trip to the convenience store or take a walk or whatever it was I was doing at 10 p.m. And you know, when my dad heard I was taking sex ed in grade five, he simply told me, okay, but remember, masturbation is not normal, and eventually informed the school I'd not be taking that class. My mom then made a point of taking me aside, and she quietly told me that she disagreed with dad, and she thought masturbation was quite normal. So I had two opinions to ponder. By this point, I'd figured out that Dad hadn't been talking about menstruation. I'd thought at the time that I certainly agreed with him that bleeding out the end of one's John Thomas every 21 days didn't sound normal at all to me either. As to the other side of the question, hookup culture kind of suggests that you need to test drive most of the cars in the lot before you can readily claim to know what you're looking for and what will make you happy. First, the fear. Hookup culture assumes that something valuable, natural, and human is missed out on entirely by purity culture folks. That you might well become a dried-up old spinster with your ancient cobwebbed gametes all withered up inside you, unshared. In the words of Curry, expressing concern for my teenage self, Mike, your dick's gonna rust and fall off. And worse than that, hookup culture fears that, without being sexually experienced, you can neither know when you have or have not found a good match you can be happy with, but also that if you ever do find someone who will put up with your perversely chaste lifestyle choice, once married, the sex is very likely going to be terrible, with both of you being so inexperienced, having never put in the time required to be trained sex experts. I remember seeing this explained emphatically in the early days of the internet when I was a young brethren guy. For some reason, strangers on the early internet had said about describing the probable success of first sexual encounters between straight people. They had a sliding scale of positive experiences, which depended upon experiences. First, at the very top, at the pinnacle of the pyramid, at the apex, as it were, was a scenario in which both partners were very sexually experienced. The woman knew what men want in general, and the man knew what women want in general, and therefore the maximal amount of sexual proficiency was displayed, and the greatest amount of sexual pleasure available to human beings was most likely to be had by that pairing. 
a large step below this, they'd placed the scenario in which the man was sexually experienced, but the woman was a virgin. This would be, they said, pretty rocky. It would be a one-sided thing with the sexually experienced man knowing how to please a woman, but the woman not knowing what to do at all in bed, so pretty much just lying there or randomly flailing around like a spastic rag doll. Pretty rocky. A large step below that, they'd place the envisioned tableau in which the man was a virgin, but the woman sexually experienced. The man would, clearly, have no knowledge or any ability whatsoever to please this presumably not terribly well-known to him random woman, and it would be even worse. A tragedy to witness, in fact. But the worst scenario of all, they opined, would be a scenario in which, for some ungodly reason, the hapless man and woman were both virgins, just like we were raised to be in purity culture. This would be, they said, an utter shit show. Nothing would work. The sun would not rise, kingdoms would fall, the economy itself would collapse. So, the claim. Driving all of the cars in the lot, adopting all of the puppies and kittens in the shelter, or kids in the orphanage, one after another, on a very short-term trial basis, is absolutely essential to make sure you end up with one you can live with. It's the only way to avoid ending up with a dud, with the runt of the litter, one that won't suit you. I didn't grow up in a, in a strict, I didn't grow up in any church culture, let alone a strict culture, and so the idea that you would wait for marriage was sort of thought of as like, Oh, you know, that's a personal choice. Like some people choose to wait and some people don't choose to wait. The world or society or whatever you want to call it, the, the socialness that was going on around was like, you know, this was a good thing. You were supposed mm -hmm. to be doing it. Um, it signaled that you were uh, attractive and it signaled that you were, you know, suave and it signaled all these nice things. If you were a guy, I, I don't want to speak for my female uh, counterparts back then because I, I i'm sure it was a different story for them but for us it was like that was something you really wanted to be doing and like in my head i don't know if i ever really believed this but in my head it was like you know if you could have a threesome with two women mm -hmm. um that was like wow you you know you you'd made it like you'd made it to the land that's like um, that's like the, getting an a in history class that, that's right it's like the peak of of the potential there I, I guess i lived a pretty different high school experience than you did Needless to say, though most young women see hookup culture as the only game in town, it's an idea that is somewhat more popular among men. Growing up as I did, I struggled to understand this latter claim when it was explained to me in terms of sexual chemistry or sexual compatibility. Oh, you can't marry someone you've not thoroughly swiped first. You might find you're not compatible. Sexual compatibility sounded like a particularly improbable idea. It sounded to computer nerd teenaged me like they were suggesting that two people might simply not be able to function anatomically together. At all. Like trying to use a Commodore 64 disc with an Apple IIe. Like trying to use a UK power plug in America. Like trying to charge an iPhone with an Android charger. Like trying to install Windows on your Mac. Not compatible. This sounded highly improbable to me at the time. Sexual chemistry sounded to me only slightly less ridiculous. To young me, it sounded like it labored under the assumption that devoid of any other meaningful consideration, people were imagining that human beings were walking around with set values of how fun they'd be to have sex with for each other inherently residing in them, regardless of what transpired or failed to transpire between them in all the other areas of their interaction. It was like they were being viewed as to how well they'd activate right out of the box, so to speak.
without adapting to or working with each other very much in advance. Just good chemistry or bad. It was all testosterone and estrogen on both sides, wasn't it? Should be pretty simple. I imagine they were thinking that if you could have sex with every single person on the planet one busy night, like Santa disappearing up people's chimneys, and measure the compatibility or intensity of the sexual experience with each total stranger, they were seeing the game as one in which you were trying to find the partner with whom you could mutually have the highest numbers as to the most pleasure for the least effort, before or without considering what could be built together. The anecdotal evidence, I imagined, was them having sex with two different women and having very different sexual experiences. To do the experiment right, I thought, you'd need to then revisit the various women years later, and you might well find that it would be like having sex with completely different people than previously. I had trouble viewing sexual chemistry as some kind of set, fixed thing, something you could figure out by a quickie. Part of the difficulty in reconciling these two cultures, I think, is in the fact that one seems to be viewing sex as part of everything in the couple's relationship, colored by every single little thing, especially what went on before they knew each other. And the other seems to be seeing sex as entirely detachable from everything and everyone else. So, taken to extremes, the one seems to be trusting in the idea that just as hunger is the ultimate spice for a supper, two people getting to know each other deeply first without giving in to sexual urges is going to be the ultimate aphrodisiac or sexual aid when it's time for sex. That two people who grow to love and care for one another can certainly find ways to have a good time in bed, no matter what random kinks or quirks one is blindsided with on the honeymoon night. The other seems to be seeing a fulfilling sex life as being the result of not emotional bonding, but born of a broad, novel sexual experience and a whole lot of experimentation of the trial-and-error kind. Now... I've painted the two views in kind of extreme ways. As usual, most people are going to be more comfortable somewhere in the middle. I think the most popular way couples end up together nowadays is that men are allowed hookup culture for a while. Women, though, are at risk of slut-shaming if they end up with a man who was considerably less adventurous and undiscriminating than they were during hookup culture phase. But the end goal for all is living together and having that on-the-same-page experience that warm, close bond that virginity is magic purity culture folks are touting as well. The idea that you can have it both ways, switch horses midstream. Promiscuity as the only sensible path to achieving informed monogamy. Casual sex hopefully leading to damned serious sex. It's hard to know what to think. Is purity culture a way of tricking young men and women into buying a house without viewing it first inside and out to make sure they're going to be able to live in it comfortably and happily? Is hookup culture a way of tricking young women into having sex with a bunch of guys because otherwise they're never getting a man? Online personality and comedian Bridget Phetasy had a very emotional response to having Louise Perry as a guest on her podcast and wrote an article sharing her own thoughts and feelings on the matter. I really just wanted to take a minute, read the piece in my own voice and tell you about the reaction that I've received and tell you about some of the things I've heard and some of the things that have been put on this essay that I don't feel are what I was trying to say at all. So I'm going to read it, which I've never done this before. So we'll see how this goes. I regret being a slut. Upon opening Louise Perry's new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, I'm moved to tears by the dedication for the women who learned it the hard way. Unlike many other people who have read and reviewed Perry's work, reading her book wouldn't be some academic exercise in contemplating how liberal feminism has let women down. 
It wouldn't be evaluating what those poor sluts over there have endured in the wake of the sexual revolution. Reading her book was personal. I am one of those sluts. I'm a case study for her thesis, A Cautionary Tale. I knew this book was going to be difficult, and it made me realize it's time to finish this essay, one I've been trying to write for four years. It's a tough needle to thread. I'm grateful for the ability to control my reproductive cycle and make my own money. But that freedom has come at a price. The dark side of the sexual revolution is that even though it liberated women, unyoking sex from the consequences has primarily benefited men. I was first inspired to write this piece when a 19-year-old woman I used to wait tables with asked me, Bridget, have you ever regretted having sex with a man? I laughed. Yeah, all of them. That's not entirely true. Young girls who feel they can't get properly interested in sex unless they have formed a close emotional bond first are being told lately that this makes them part of an extremely uncommon gender identity called demisexual, which sits on the inclusion flag right there with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and gender fey people. I suppose we have stopped accusing girls like that of being frigid. Now they're either traditionally Christian or a previously marginalized boutique gender identity, or both. I pulled in Megan and Emily to make this less of a sausage fest and to try to get a clear sense of what worldlies mean when they say sexual compatibility. I'm filled with the certainty that a whole lot of people are using the same phrases, expressions, and words as each other, but without really knowing what each other mean exactly by all those same phrases, words, and expressions. They might be saying the same thing and meaning something quite different. So they sent me audio-only voice notes for me to use. So to me, sexual chemistry is made up of three different things. Attachment, love, and lust. I think the first two can be built on. So like when you're dating somebody, you're getting to know them and developing, you know, communication and trust. Things like that. And I think it's the same in the brethren too, because... You know, they have a period of time of talking to each other and meeting each other's families and and whatever else. The thing is, though, worldly people have choice. There's so many of us to choose from. So if you don't have, you know, the attachment to some person or maybe not the lust, whatever, you can date someone else. It's fine. But within the brethren, there isn't that much choice. You kind of only have the church you go to and maybe another one. So if there isn't that many girls that you fancy or boys, it's going to be tough. And you might not have all three of those um, aspects to have that chemistry with somebody. And I think, I think it can be built on. I mean, the love and attachment side of things definitely can be. As time goes on, they will, you know, come to love their partner. Maybe not be in love with them, but still love them, still be attached to them. But it's the lust part that's kind of difficult. I think without that, it can be hard to have chemistry with somebody because you need to want them and desire them. And if you don't, or one person does and the other one doesn't, it can create issues, I think. And I think that's the only one that 
you can't really change whether you have that desire for someone or not. So to recap, the idea is that you can build or develop the other aspects of the relationship, but not what people call sexual chemistry. That's an immutable, fixed reality, apparently. So that's at the heart of the fear. Being married to someone you respect and love and love the look of and love being with and desperately want to get naked, but find that when the clothes come off, the sexual experience is inherently, unnegotiably meh. I think that worldly people approach dating with a checklist in mind of things that you want in a partner. And I think that quite high on the list is sexual chemistry. Because it's one of the bigger things that separates your partner from just being a friend. So I think that there's quite a lot of emphasis around how important that is. I think that a relationship could work if you're not sexually compatible, but I think it probably would put quite a strain on it. Um... And I think that's why when dating, usually after a few dates is, is when you would have sex with someone, it's just a check on the list of, okay, I see a future with that person because we're compatible in that way. So I think that it's quite interesting that in the brethren, that's one thing that you don't know until after marriage. I think it would be quite tough to have a relationship where you're not compatible in each way and to know that once you're married you can't divorce them if you're not compatible I think it's a tough choice to make but it seems that worldly people put the sexual chemistry quite high on the list of importance and it seems that brethren have it quite low and that men seem to want to find a woman that can run a household and look after them so they don't really need to lift a finger. And the women are more interested in being taken care of. So how much money do they make? What's their status like? It doesn't seem like sexual chemistry is really regarded at all and I think that's quite a big difference. I think it must be quite difficult for a brethren member to grow up during hookup culture because as much as they are sheltered away from us worldlies they're still surrounded by the culture itself. I mean it's everywhere you know, even being around worldly people, I assume they probably feel like they're missing out on something. And I mean, it's only natural to want to explore those kind of feelings with someone. I remember speaking about it with Harry once and he said a lot of people get into trouble for having sex. So I find that quite interesting that even though they are made to feel guilty and should feel ashamed of having those sorts of thoughts, let alone acting on them. 
it seems like it's a losing battle between the priests and the brethren members. It does seem like it isn't as punished as it used to be though. It seems if you do it the once, you get a slap on the wrist and told that it's wrong and then are fed all the scripture to make you feel guilt and shame and awful and that if you continue down this path you're going to be punished and awful things are going to happen to you so then you don't do it again or at least you don't get caught doing it again but if you are a repeat offender that punishment is a lot harsher but it does depend on who you are I think I think the women get it a lot worse than the men do. I think they're punished more severely and made to feel like they're whores, basically. I think that's really quite horrible. I mentioned Emily that the audio-only recording was picking up both her soothing background music but also the fact that she was in the bath. That's not stuff I can edit out either. Because <laughs> well, I've got soothing music underneath. Um, I do think that talking with your partner and getting that depth of discussion of emotional needs and wants and having those uncomfortable discussions deepens the emotional in intimacy more so than what sex ever will. However, having sex on top of that just deepens the connection and the emotional int intimacy even more so that's just as an added bonus really Megan found that she kind of agreed with Louise Perry's claim that hookup culture is a bit of a con pulled on women to greatly devalue the coin of sexual activity but says when she says something like this out loud she has this stab in her heart like she's betrayed feminism by saying that hookup culture is anything other than the very heart and soul of the advancement of women. I guess we all have our indoctrination. I was trying to explain, like, my own experience with, like, hookup culture and how, in a nutshell, I feel like it's been missold to women to, like, get us more into casual sex so that men can have more casual sex. But actually... You just, it's, it's a lie. <laughs> um, and it's kind of damaging and leaves you feeling numb and empty and used afterwards. It just sounded like I was against women by saying it and that I was slut-shaming. Anson mentioned the idea that as you build your relationship, you build a whole lot of things that rest comfortably and firmly upon that sturdy, resilient, emotional foundation including sex, so hanging out and growing feelings partly serves to put bang for your buck in the sex bank. Also, quite tellingly, Anson mentioned the idea that being good at sex is more than just memorizing moves like you can learn for dancing or playing an instrument in a band, but, like dancing or playing an instrument in a band, it's a lot about listening and being responsive. It's adapting to what is going on with the other person, moment by moment. 
it's hard to tell if dancing with a large number of people makes you more responsive to random dance partners tossed at you then dancing every night with one will make you more responsive to subtle changes in mood and inclination in her other any activity right mm -hmm. you know whether it's playing an instrument dancing you know you name it i mean it's the skill itself is is can be broken down into smaller skills right but is so, it really like that like um if it's if we're talking about it purely as like a sport yes you should you should practice yeah. but like Courtney said that she wanted to have something to give. So with her, it wasn't about proficiency. It was about the the emotional significance of the coming together. Yeah, but it's not an either or. You know, those things aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. You know, I'm a drummer and there's a skill set. So I, I may be proficient in certain skills at drumming. Um, you know, I played in concert band and I, I was, you know, I, I won a lot of awards for snare drumming. Right. But depending on the drum that I'm playing, depending on how I feel that day, depending on the acoustics. Right. I mean, something as you know, simple as acoustics, for example, if I'm in a concert hall that sounds different and there's an mm -hmm. echo that can distract me. So my playing might be very different than it would be, say, in a studio or just if I'm nervous. Right. Or, or I mean, like I, a, a wooden bodied snare versus a steel bodied snare, or a longer, shorter snare, what weight of sticks and whether you're playing jazz way, or playing metal. Weight and the size of the sticks would be huge. Yeah. So yeah, this so, this is almost an argument that it's not 100% transferable that I play. In other words, what it seems to lead me toward is a lot of guys are like, well, I've had sex with lots of women, so I know women. And when they have sex with the next woman, they're like, well, I, I know what I'm doing. And it sounds like you're making a great argument for you need to be very adaptable to who the woman is. And if you were waiting until marriage, you'd have to learn her, not women as a gender. Again, I think it's important to recognize that multiple things can be true at the same time, and they often are true at the same time. So right. one of the skills that I think would, you know, ostensibly be very important as far as lovemaking would be <laughs> if it's that variety of sex, right? I mean, because that, that's a question too. Right. But it, it would be listening, right? How attentive are you? How observant are you? Are you able to, you know, ask and answer questions? Are you able to listen, mm -hmm. you know, communicate? And I used to dance, um, you know, I, I did ballroom dancing and that definitely is a skill set, but there's also a particular type of chemistry and communication that each dancing couple or pair has to share. So I've, I've had experiences with be, being partnered with someone who just really was resistant to anything I, I wanted to do. I mean, they had a problem because I was, I was taught in the traditional sense that the man always leads the dance. Well, some women... They have difficulty with that. They want you to lead the dance the way they want it to be led, right? And so right. The that begs the question, who's actually leading? Is it you or is it me? Am I just kind of a sock puppet that is doing what you want to be done? So I think sex can be the same way. Ultimately, it's almost like there are two people involved in most sex acts and two main considerations. The first consideration is, how is this interaction making my body feel? Am I having lots of glowy good feelings culminating in some kind of release? The second consideration is, oh, there's another person here too. I quite like and feel rather close to them. Either one or both can be missing. I guess that's the fear. And there is a real gender difference here. Women can experience sex as being really pretty terrible. And when alone with men, they can fear for their safety. 
For guys, though, even the very worst sex they are likely to have is still worth getting into bed for. Men do not generally fake, or need to fake, orgasms. When talking with Anson in Messenger, I asked him how he's raising his son as regards sex. Anson said he's teaching his son that it's important to remain pure before getting married and that promiscuity, which he calls fornication, is disgusting and dirty. You're a dad, and so I thought I could both ask you, like, what, what would your dad have told you? But you're, you are a dad, so what were you told and what would you tell or what have you told your son? Well, that, that's, that's a whole discussion. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, my dad really told me very little. He was very awkward very uncomfortable discussing anything about sexuality mm-hmm. very very uncomfortable so much so that i mean i remember watching these 80s sitcoms you know um there was a sitcom about two black kids who got adopted by a wealthy white guy different strokes different strokes yeah what you talking about willis yeah so either that show or something like it same time period there was this discussion on the show about you know, talking about the birds and the bees. And so I I had seen this phrase, you know, repeatedly on TV, heard it. And so I realized my dad has never talked to me about the birds and the bees. And so I confronted him. I was like, Dad, when are you going to talk to me about the birds and the bees? You know, and, and he's like, well, I haven't had a chance or something. You know, and I'm like, well, I need to have that. We need to have that talk. You know, like, I'm just really pressing for it. Uh-huh. And he got super uncomfortable. Well, I had no idea that the conversation wasn't literally about birds and bees. I thought it was right. about nature. <laughs> so, I mean, it is about nature, but, you know, I had no, no understanding that there was like the sexual component to it. I mean, asking dad questions about my body, you know, mm-hmm. just, he was very, just very uncomfortable. Exactly the same with mine. Yeah. Like both of us can remember probably one specific conversation and how awkward it was. Yeah. With my son, um, I do bring up sex with some regularity, you know, not specifics, but I talk about this is how our bodies are designed. This is how God made us. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, something that's to be shared between a husband and wife. You know, you're going to hear a lot of other things from from classmates, you know, people in the community, some of our relatives, you know, they don't believe that. But this is what we believe as Christians, you know, Mm -hmm. and you know, very rarely will he ask questions. And it's it's more, I can't even remember what his questions have been, but he did uh, some months ago with the overturning of Roe v. Wade on this side of the border. Um, he did want to have a discussion with me about abortion, mm-hmm. not so much sex per se, but, but I used that conversation to say, you know, hey, a lot of the confusion, a lot of the anger that you see women displaying is because they historically have felt we don't have control over our bodies. And so that Mm -hmm. we were kind of talk about things like consent and what sex is properly used for. Right. You know, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I don't agree with their theology usually, but I think one of the things that they do have right is they have a very robust, you know, explanation of sex being both unitive and procreative. Mm -hmm. And I think that people kind of want one or the other uh, without kind of fully embracing the both. I ran by Anson the idea that, if Louise Perry and so on are right, that human beings have a primal, essential disgust response, which no doubt kept and keeps us from eating things that will make us sick or 
doing unacceptable sexual things or putting ourselves at risk of catching diseases from one another. And if women are statistically far easier to disgust than men, despite periods, childbirth, and all of the other very physical and fluid-based functions their bodies function with, humans having a healthy disgust response about how we interact with any fluid that has recently left someone else's body, resorting even to the wearing of face masks to curtail micro droplets of airborne saliva flying about willy-nilly from people's mouths, and if men usually take more to disgust in most ways, see my kitchen, than women, and teenage boys are the human beings hardest to disgust with anything ever, and if we live in a time when we are determined to root out that last person with any disgust response left for disabilities, race, sex acts, pornography, nude, gay, and trans people in parades, old people, homeless people, and when kink-shaming and slut-shaming are instead seen as disgusting, then maybe trying to keep your son from sticking his penis anywhere any girl his age will let him by telling him that that's disgusting isn't, as they say, a winning tactic. Not with a teenage boy who might have dared his friend last week to eat cat food or lick a frog, and who's likely seen porn on his phone that is actually illegal. That message might be falling on hearing-impaired adolescent ears. Not sure what Anson thought of that. Ultimately, like too many other human things that can be divided into two schools of thought, you can choose which side you think makes sense and do your best to live it out, and you may still end up looking right, and you could also end up looking wrong. You might start out looking right for about 20 years, but then end up looking wrong for the 20 years that follow that. Being human is hard. Ultimately, I'm with Thomas Sowell that a lot of what are presented as solutions or as new ideas or even as progress is actually people congratulating themselves for a series of trade-offs, compromises they've made, rearranging the furniture, so to speak. So in the case of women, they were deeply unhappy about their reality, their role, their experience, one set of things about their lot in life. So as a society, you fix all that and congratulate yourselves. But you do it by also changing, without taking a hard look at what you're actually doing and how it will turn out, a whole bunch of other things that are quite likely to make women just as unhappy, only in new, hard-to-figure-out ways. In this, obviously, men are exactly the same. My father taught me about traditional sex roles. Women are always complaining, Dad said. They're never satisfied, never happy. Well, of course, there is a great deal of truth in that. Look on social media. Talk to any woman. But the same thing is just as true of men. It's just that the vast majority of us men aren't trying to date men, so we don't pay much attention to them and how annoying we are, too. Rabbit Trail I was listening to a podcast about the 80s Sherlock Holmes TV show the other day, and as often happens, when the two guys who love those stories about two male friends who solve mysteries saw that a female listener had mailed in, they had a knee-jerk flinch reaction, looking over their shoulders to see what mom had to say, it being a female commenter, hoping she wasn't there to put an end to the fun and point out all the ways in which Sherlock Holmes is bad and bad for women. She fairly quickly expressed her grudging appreciation for the show, noting a few feminist concerns about it, of course. For example, given that it's two men who help out people, some of them women, by solving crimes, the show is definitely guilty as sin of depicting the occasional woman who needs help from a man for something. When she revealed that, with this reservation, she thought it was actually a good show, and mentioned no other shows she thought did a better job of depicting women that she thought people should watch instead of Sherlock Holmes, 
The two guys breathed a sigh of relief and said that, naturally, the Victorian British folks were not as morally advanced as we all are nowadays. Right now, especially, you know, we're canceling a lot of older authors and artists and things like that, which, you know, maybe some of them deserve it. But I think at the same time, you almost have to look for the good because it was really easy to look for the bad back then because we weren't that morally advanced back then. So I think if you find something good, you should embrace it. And it made me imagine pulling a group of typical Victorians forward to our year and time, letting them get a real taste for our politics, education, policing, justice system, gender roles, treatment of children, and approach to marriage and sexuality in general, and then telling these folks, with their monocles and mutton-chop whiskers and bustles and gowns, that they were gazing on a civilization far more morally advanced than their own Victorian morality could ever provide them. And I imagine them laughing. Trade-offs. We wanted women to be able to navigate hookup culture more easily about a century ago, to be able to date more like men, and to add sexual freedom and equality to the scene. So, to make it happen, we decided to start doing a whole lot of abortions. We get more freedom for women nowadays, we just have to change what we think of as a baby. I'm not saying we need to stop all abortions. I'm saying all abortions are trade-offs. For every social action, there's an equal and opposite social reaction. Republicans get to be greedy. Republicans care about themselves, their families, rich people. That's it. Liberals got to care about everybody. Not fetuses. But everybody else. <laughs> a fetus. Who's with me, liberals? I will punt a fetus down Wilshire if I see what I'm saying. Since I last recorded a podcast episode, I watched Neil Brennan's special Blocks and could not believe how much on the same page he and I are this month. Is is your life going smoothly? (laughs) Are you just floating from event to event feeling good about yourself? Because I'm not. (laughs) Most interactions I have feel like when you go to throw something away and it's in one of those garbage cans, got like a garbage hole a recycling hole and a compost hole, and you do your best, but afterward you're like, I don't think I did that right. (laughs) That's how I feel most of the time. (laughs) Going through life, feeling like I f***ed up, and I'm going to get in trouble. I worry that my final thought on Earth, on my deathbed, is going to be, is that nurse mad at me? (laughs) About all of that, Brennan could be writing this episode, not so much about him going through life having created a number of very lucrative works of media that are still bringing in money, but all the other stuff. But is progress real? Are things now in general getting better, getting better all the time? It's easy to argue that they are, that it's the best year of the decade ever, and next year is guaranteed to be even better than this one. Fashionable even to say this. I mean, vaccinations and C-sections, contraception and abortions, right? Heavily restricted use of the N-word, unrestricted use of the F-word. To say you aren't happy might be interpreted as a criticism of the current guys in power, which might be proof positive you play for the other team. But if you look around the back of the freshly painted set, things are messier back there, and in many important ways, things are about the same as they ever were, apart from that fresh coat of the aforementioned paint, of course. People are still angry, and they still all know just how to fix everything, if only people would let them. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. Oh, 
Like me, Courtney struggled to be much of her whole self, particularly her physical self. Courtney writes, My physical self-expression is still very limited in how I present myself to the world. I'm more closed than open. I wasn't born that way, and remember clearly being otherwise when I was young. This I do regret, and sincerely wish I could reclaim the ability to fully express myself and personality in all my interactions. Unlike Courtney, I think maybe, just like Lady Gaga, I was born this way. As to the breakup letters I got back in the day, Evan, who I hear is a pretty decent drummer, writes, You blew right by the we're not going to do this anymore letter, and I would have been very interested to hear more about those mailing correspondences. Ahem. Let me try to conjure up a reasonable facsimile of exactly the kind of Dear Brother John letters I remember getting back in the day. You have to picture this written on lavender stationery with a picture of a sunflower or a sunset in the lower left-hand corner with very pretty cursive writing and perfect spelling, punctuation, and paragraphing. All of the paragraphs will end with exclamation points of deep sincerity. Dear Mike, thanks so much for your recent letters. I finally got around to reading them after Lord's Day morning meeting this week, and they certainly are interesting. I've been reading in the Book of Numbers before breakfast lately, and I'm finding it very edifying. The Lord certainly is coming soon, perhaps today. Brother Salton visited our meeting earlier this month and brought his model tabernacle with him and gave a very interesting talk about it. Such a privilege to sit under the sound of the word with the Lord's people. I don't know, of course, the details as to what went on with your father and your assembly, but I do know that anything the older brothers do is only done for our encouragement and that they have our best interests at heart and are following the Lord's leading in what they do as regards us, over whom they have the oversight. I will certainly pray that your dear father finds the path back to the Lord's will again. Surely true happiness is found only there. As to your suggestion that we might be about to have a division, I remember my great-grandfather often saying in meeting, When we look at the negative, Satan looks at that and laughs. But when we look at the positive, God looks down and smiles. I have been in prayer over you a lot lately, and just really feel the Lord is leading me to maybe not write to you so much anymore. Of course I think we should remain friends. It's certainly not you or anything you did. It's him. His ways are often beyond our limited human comprehension. Unrelated, you may have heard that I met a guy named Seth Hilter at Rolling Springs Conference and am in prayer to seek the Lord's mind in possibly starting to write to him. Seth is a very godly guy who truly loves the Lord and is just so positive. I think you'd like him. His family owns a prosthetic limb company. He is very tall and has such a love for the things of the Lord. I hope you're looking forward to Cleveland Conference as much as I am. Are you coming this year? It should be a time for edification and encouragement. You certainly have a gift for writing. I trust you only use it for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. Yours and him, Leah Mason. Proverbs 5.20. Enclosed, find my notes for the reading meetings on Lord's Day at Rolling Springs Conference. Hopefully, that gives you some idea, Evan. For me, crushes on women were kind of how I imagine cocaine might be. A rush of energy and euphoria, but one which wanes eventually, leaving you with a backlog of tiredness and self-doubt that the narcotic had been staving off, rather like its much milder kissing cousin caffeine does. For an introvert like me, making overtures to cute women requires acting very out of character, not acting like yourself at all, being more fun than you are, acting in a way that's not terribly sustainable over time. 
And for a depressive, getting ignored and rejected by women adds greatly to that load of dark emotion it feels like you're carrying everywhere with you. It confirms all of your lifelong doubts that you ever belong in any room with a single additional person in there besides you. About that, and a bit of content for fans who are hoping I talk at length about depression, I know a guy my age I'm going to call Colin, who I keep in sporadic touch with. I've known Colin for my whole adult life, and since I've known him, Colin has always lived in a cabin in the woods with his mother, has not worked, has not had terribly robust coping skills to say the least, and has dropped frequent hints about his intention to take his own life, or at the very least, not look after himself and his failing health, and to not bother living much longer, the latter on social media. Colin is terribly, terribly emotionally frail. So I was horrified to hear last month that Colin's mother had literally dropped dead in front of him, and he'd had to deal with that situation all by himself, which he did. And now he faces living the rest of his life alone, newly orphaned. But Colin's little world of misery is such a walled city that even the death of his mother has done little to affect his depression, self-loathing, and self-neglect in any visible way. It doesn't seem to have made it worse. In fact, it might even be doing a bit to validate Colin's view of how the world, and his life in particular, tend to go. So last weekend, I visited Colin in his little forest cabin because I quite like him and haven't seen him for a while, and without quite meaning to, ended up somewhat using Colin as an internal ruler against which to measure my own emotional health, as one does. With me, I am visited daily, if not hourly, by a lot of nagging little thoughts of self-doubt or even self-loathing. They kind of hover around my head like gnats most of the time. If I'm working on a podcast episode or some music, these little motes of darkness try to intrude and tell me I'm terrible, a disgrace, an embarrassment, a failure, pointless, self-deluding, and all of that. Every note I play sounds like a stupid, very, very bad idea. So I work blind. I keep doing my best, having gotten fairly used to these thoughts being of little use to me, and of them being fleeting things that come and go. So I try to brush them aside like gnats and keep working just as if I believed in the worth of what I'm doing deep down, because maybe deep down I do. And if I can't get rid of them, I wait, and in an hour or two, realize I'm not thinking or feeling that way so much anymore. I take from cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, I suppose, Mainly the idea that those thoughts aren't truth, they have a dubious relation to reality or any balanced view of it, aren't the whole story, aren't me. They're just thoughts that I need feel no shame about or even fear about, nor accept as legitimate. I don't have to believe every thought I have, let alone insist that everyone else believe them too. I guess the key is believing not only in a god, but in an authentic reality existing outside myself that I am not God over, a reality that I can attempt to negotiate with, but cannot completely define or change. Oh, it would be nice to be more Eastern or even more French than I already am, and decide that I am creating, moment by moment, constructing reality as I go about my day, vibrating at the very highest cosmic frequency my meditation, herbal supplements, tonics, and teas can manage, conjuring up people, places, things and situations from my own rich inner world, creator of everything. But maybe that's not true? Maybe I am really a small fish swimming through a sea of interrelated molecules, many of which I have little or no power over. Maybe my biggest challenge is to make sure my own molecules continue to constitute a me at all, lest there not be one. 
And if this is so, much of what goes on in my inner world may be at odds with what is going on outside me and may lie quite beyond my physical, economic, and cognitive grasp. What all this means for a functioning depressive is that when I think or feel things inside, I can remember that they may be troublingly removed from what's real outside me. In fact, Eric Fromm wrote confidently in the mid-20th century that sanity is having a healthy connection between internal and external realities, the inner man not being entirely out of touch with the world around him. Shaky sanity isn't enough like that. So things around me can be absolutely fine, good even, and my inner reality can cause me to feel, think, act, and function just as if there is something deeply dangerous, disappointing, or wrong going on, when really the only thing that's wrong quite often is just wrong with me, inside me. Feeling anxiety, which is a fear response, a response to imminent danger, if you think about it, when I am profoundly, boringly, troublingly safe on a daily basis, feeling disappointment and a lack of inspiration when I'm surrounded by really good things and experiencing good luck slash the blessing of God in a number of ways. Here's an automotive example of how this works. My raised driveway, which is long, unpaved, and takes a sharp turn to the left while going very steeply uphill, hasn't had a load of gravel on it for who knows how long. And over the past few years, rain has been rapidly washing it away into the forest below, so it increasingly starts to be less of a driveway and more of a rustic hillside, a great place to go hiking. And as winter arrives or leaves, there is a whole months-long rhythm of melting and freezing, remelting and refreezing that it undergoes. Large pools of water collect here and there, then freeze glassy and slick. It's fun. My car is a sports car, a 2010 Dodge Charger, so it has about five inches of clearance and rear-wheel drive and is almost as good on ice and snow as a unicycle, or maybe a skateboard would be. So I also have a 2006 Ford Explorer a guy sold me with a very guilty expression on his face, him bargaining me down lower than his original asking price. The first time my driveway froze solid this year, snow tires not yet on my car, and no way to drive it out of the yard to go get snow tires put on it, I fired up the old Explorer and was a bit concerned at how rickety it was, how roughly the engine ran, and how many trouble lights were troublingly lit on the dash. I took it easy on up the driveway, always a bad idea with my driveway, and the engine heaved and shook, and it seemed like it wasn't going to make it. So right in the middle of one of the patches of ice, I hit the gas and fishtailed dramatically, chewing up unfrozen bits of driveway, barely inching up onto the road at the top a bit sideways. All day long at work, I worried about the Explorer letting me down, and my car being useless to me as well, of not being able to get to work throughout the winter. So I decided to go get the oil changed in the city after school and see if that made the beast run smoother. As for the aging sports car, it's trapped there until this unseasonable ice melts a bit before winter. With a great deal of trepidation, I drove the old Explorer at normal speeding speeds or greater on the highway into Ottawa. And I found that with the usual Canadian groupthink city sync, everyone else was parked in line getting their snow tires put on and oil changed and so on, just like me. I realized I would have to, after a long day at work, sit in my car for more than two hours if I wanted to get my oil changed anywhere around there, with customers parked at all the neighboring businesses as the Mr. Lube's lots were all filled to overflowing. So I took the opportunity to get some gas that was a bit cheaper than it's been around here lately, 
drop by a city music store, our local ones all fell to COVID, including the one George used to own, and pick up a couple of pairs of drumsticks George asked me to pick up for him if I was in the city at any point this month. I'm hoping to get George drumming on a few of my songs for this album. And I drove home, vowing to get my oil changed another day. And you know what? It seemed like the Explorer was kind of pretty much fine now. No trouble lights went out on the dash, but they were lit all last winter anyway. I'd gotten used to them lit last winter, and had driven it all afternoon that day at high speeds, and it hadn't let me down or gotten worse or anything. It seemed to me like the drive had done the Explorer some good. So I picked up some oil, and tried to check my own oil, and found the hood was stuck shut, couldn't get the latch to release it, and so drove home, stopping to thoroughly sew the driveway with a bag of last winter's road salt before I drove carefully down it. And this morning, I left my driveway going faster than before, but driving smarter, accelerating on patches of earth rather than patches of ice, flew out of there like the Batmobile leaving the Batcave. What had changed? My inner world. And none of that magically changed my outer world at all. The outer world stayed as it had been, but seemed very different to me, simply due to less fear nibbling at my prefrontal cortex. And I had a good look at those two very different worlds, the one outside myself, the one that my life is about interacting and negotiating with, and the one inside me, the one that is infested with bugaboos both genetic and evangelical, bringing me the bad news that I'm going to suffer and die and lose everything and everything sucks and everyone wants me to fail. But I spoke with Colin in his cabin in the woods that day, and he once again mentioned, as he often does on social media, but with a grim little smile in person, the simple fact that as far as he's concerned, there's no point in him living any longer, or doing anything to live longer, or looking after himself, how long it's been since he's showered, and so on, and I recognized the kinds of thoughts that buzz around my head and have since I was a child. The difference is that where, as a child and teenager, I took these thoughts more seriously, feared them, worried about them, saw them very much as my own thoughts and the only thoughts I was capable of having, and as thoughts which definitely represented a mature and serious hard look at truth, as honest thoughts which might result in my very logically deciding that the logical thing to do was logically take my own life, unlike Colin, I have grown to not do any of that mostly anymore to view my inner world as reliably unreliable, to heavily devalue my own lived experience. I'm relatively unlikely to take my own life, and although when blindsided by a thought carrying a little stinger of self-loathing futility or existential doubt, I generally fall for it at first, I've developed the habit of asking myself, Am I really a traitor to Christians everywhere, a destroyer of the faith, an appalling pervert who should die, and someone who should never sing or play guitar, let alone record himself doing that? Or is it just late afternoon again, and I'm being visited by my dark passenger? And generally, if I eat something, take a walk, or take a nap, or just wait, those dark thoughts kind of burn themselves out, and they're more or less gone, or they certainly fade into the background a little bit, instead of being the only thoughts in my head. And I try not to stay trapped in my own inner world. I try to inject myself into the outer world, and let it into my inner one in return. It has trees, and a lake, and cookies and stuff. Girls, even. But when I spoke to Colin, I noted that, like my brethren compatriots unthinkingly guarding their brains from all the epiphanies and unresolved contradictions that have been following them around for their whole lives, 
Cullen jealously, angrily guarded his suicidal ideation and self-loathing from anything anyone said. He protected it. It's his identity. Question any of the tenets of it, and Cullen responds like you're a bigot trying to invalidate who he genuinely is deep down, failing to tolerate his suicidal ideation. There was an annoyance that anyone would ever question the truth or health of him planning to neglect himself and not live too much longer. And this wasn't a new thing caused by Colin grieving his mother's recent death. That stuff wasn't making a dent on this old familiar cycle of thoughts at all. Colin has always cradled these dark thoughts to his ample bosom and protected them from getting too much sun. I'm sure on some level, somewhere, the whole truckload of grief that comes with the loss of your only remaining parent was parked idling, but Colin's psyche had so little room for his grief and loss that it seemed to be parked behind the warehouse indefinitely. Who knows if that truck will ever be unloaded? One of the very worst things about living the kinds of lives that Colin and I live is that we have never managed to make our lives enough about enough other people enough. We think mostly about ourselves because that's kind of inevitable when you don't see other people much and aren't much of a part of anyone else's life. For many of us, depression isn't about sad. It's more about not knowing how to deal with happy, especially happy that is being angrily demanded of us from angry other people, stat. For many of us, it's responding with annoyance, impatience, judgment, criticism, awkwardness, and suspicion to things that other people could unthinkingly turn to with at least a modicum of joy, responding negatively to what should probably be joyful things, and not believing any other response could ever be an option open to us. Many people struggle to understand that what tastes or smells wonderful to them may not have the same effect on everyone else, that what's interesting or fun for them may not be interesting or fun to everyone. How can you not like blue cheese, sauerkraut, blood pudding, and kombucha, they will demand. I just don't understand how you can not like them, they will continue quite truthfully. Unlike Colin and I, some people have happy heads they lock themselves in, with little awareness of others living lives outside of them or any strong connection to an external world of reality. Others of us struggle mightily to find things that work for us in terms of getting a positive emotional response. Here, I use positive and negative, as most people do, to simply mean, I like that, and I don't like that. I ran some of this by Evan. Me, and some people that I know, anyone who suffers with depression has the risk of getting locked inside their head, that they're locked inside an unhappy head, and, they're, and they, we lose touch with what's happening around us, especially happy stuff. But it struck me that some people have happy heads, and some of them are locked inside happy heads. And when they're dealing with us, they have no hope of seeing that there's a different person outside of them with a different anything. And I think that's true in, in all human relations, that people are often very ignorant of whether they're being heard or, or, or whether they're communicating effectively or or like men are famous for not being able to quote unquote read the room. But I think human beings, uh, there's a, a scale, but I think a lot of times we're not really reading the room very much. We're mm -hmm. just, we're just blindly projecting our thoughts and feelings out into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so. If I talk and, to and people, I say things that I haven't thought before. That's the value of talking to somebody other than myself is I say things I haven't thought before. But the talk that day with Colin wasn't mostly about all this stuff. In the style of men, we didn't get into the recent death itself at all directly, though we talked fairly thoroughly about everything peripheral to and resulting from the tragic loss. 
I didn't say, Colin, what was it like to kneel over your mother's lifeless corpse, failing to revive her, where you two lived alone, in the house where you have lived your whole life, but in which you are now the only remaining living tenant? I did not reflectively listen, Colin, and say, You know, Colin, when you told me what you did, and thanks so much for opening up to me, it sounded like maybe your mother's sudden death made you feel a bit sad and upset. Is that right? Instead, I asked what Colin was doing lately, what his plans were, and what supports he had in place still, and so on. I talked about how he's going to get by. We also mainly talked about nerdy stuff we like in shows we've pirated, streamed, or bought tickets to go and see recently. Colin went to a different show of Werle Yankovic than I did this year, so I asked him how that performance had gone. Basically, whether Al did well, if the show was well-organized and put on, if the audience seemed to be responding to it, and Colin told me that it wasn't a very good show because he, Colin, had a very sore back and couldn't sit comfortably. This got me thinking about how Colin seemed unable to think outside of himself enough to have that conversation. His back hurt, therefore Weird Al's show wasn't good. Colin's thing is to think and feel only profound self-loathing, judgment, rejection, and shame towards himself, but to think and feel only appreciation, excitement, and warm gratitude for pretty much every single thing Disney, particularly Marvel, Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who, and all the rest of it, put out. Colin does marathons of 70s sci-fi the way my cousin Dave does, well, marathons. Where I'm often tired of or even insulted by exactly how they're trying to sell my childhood to me yet again and what kind of wrapper it's in now and how little understanding of the original thing their caricature of it demonstrates or whatever, Colin is always excited, always appreciative, terrified he might miss out on any tiny crumb of it. Where I find some of the lowest budget 70s and 80s science fiction and fantasy a bit embarrassing to look back on and the new iterations of it insulting and poorly conceived, Colin loves every bit of it. It's what he does. He's a lover of nerdy things. We all need to love something. And where I have report cards to do soon, songs and podcasts to make, interviews to do for them, drum parts to acquire from George and supper up my parents coming up, Colin has, I guess, the next Marvel movie that comes out. I have to shower to go into work. I have to get this episode's song done or it won't air when I've decided I want it to air. Colin might go buy groceries tomorrow or maybe the next day without showering. Once you haven't showered for two weeks, it's not like the personal hygiene situation is getting much worse anytime soon. And I'm not telling tales out of school here. Colin posts this information and more on Facebook, so we all have a clear idea of how he's living right now, pretty much daring us to try to change his mind about how hopeless and pointless he says his life is and losing his temper if we try. Colin protects his despair like it's his own personal pot of gold. I remember my interactions with Colin over the years very well and see very familiar patterns and cycles endlessly repeated. Colin doesn't remember much of any of it, apart from a list of times people were insensitive to him, though he knows the actor names for every Doctor Who companion there ever was. Remembering his own life, to the same degree, might mean recognizing patterns and being tempted to change them. I really like Colin. Besides the whole Colin might take his own life thing, something else made me feel a bit bad too. Talking to Colin was making me feel emotionally healthy by comparison. I'm more than capable of feeling bad about feeling good. Colin fiercely insists that compared to him, I am emotionally in fantastic shape, no problems at all. And that felt oddly good, 
Oh, I always enjoy reconnecting with the very few people from my past who still want to hear from me. And it was unseasonably sunny and warm, and I took a walk in the wind by a small river in the woods. But also, I spent hours there at Colin's place, and the whole time I was there, my brain had to simply shut down its habitual cynicism, pessimism, catastrophizing, gloom, doom, awkwardness, shame, and misery, and just let Colin do that. Because Colin was definitely doing all the that there was to sanely do and more. And it was really odd having my brain there with me, simply free for once to do other stuff. It was incredibly freeing, actually. It couldn't do all of that dark stuff, in fact. Colin was doing it all. And I was, for once, all the way across the room from those dark thought and feeling cycles, watching them darkly tick over and poking them with a conversational stick from time to time, so to speak, and seeing if I could make Colin doubt any of his world-ending, self-ending thinking, and seeing how frantically he protected everything he's using to be miserable and despairing with. The prospect of being handed an idea, the only sane response to which was hope and happiness, and not being able to respond sanely to it, made Colin panic. I'm a bit like that too sometimes. I told Colin I could tell he's lost a bit of weight, which urgently needs to happen to a medical degree, and this compliment upset his dark thought cycles, so Colin kind of snapped at me warningly, though he has lost a bit of weight. I know what it's like to have someone speak a simple, inarguable, positive fact and find that it mainly just reminds you that you aren't able to deal with it being a real thing, to not know what to do with nice things. So the armchair analysis I made from Cullen's departed mom's so recently vacated armchair, and which analysis I didn't bother Colin with, was that Colin is miserable and most comfortable being miserable, misery feeling like home to him doesn't know how to be any different and is scared and upset by any intruding suggestion that he should or could be any different. When Colin's doctor tried to get Colin to get gastric band surgery to make sure he lives longer than he's likely to at his weight, Colin told him, Colin posted on social media actually, that he wasn't willing to do a single thing to try to prolong his pointless life a day longer, and he wants people to remember this and not bother him as to his wishes. But Colin has sneakily been exercising lately, so there's a tiny bit of hope in that, I think. By chance, Colin had a second visitor over, who I'll call Paul, a neighbor's relative who's been in the neighborhood of late as much as forests have neighborhoods, who had a charmingly calm, disarmingly warm, chill demeanor. Tall, thin, wild curly hair, and a beard. He was open-hearted, relaxed, and content, and seemed easily contented. I helped Paul put his canoe into a shed for the winter. Paul is recently out of a brief stint in prison, I found later. But the word I'd most use to describe Paul is free. Nothing like that sticks to Paul for long. I can well imagine Paul in prison being internally freer and more content than Colin, who's still wounded by the fact that his long-dead father used to tell Colin that he was no good and would only end up in jail one day, which has never come close to happening, Colin having mainly watched science fiction his entire adult life. And you don't usually go to jail for that. And I looked over at tall and slender Paul, casually charming a young woman over the phone to deliver him an olive and feta cheese pizza to a cabin much too remote for her to normally bother delivering a cheese pizza to, and then joking and flirting warmly and distantly and undemandingly with her when she showed up, tipping well and eating his pizza as the sun set and giving me a slice along with a can of beer he'd had in his pocket while he enjoyed another one. People are really different from each other. 
I joked with and teased Colin a bit, hoping I was a comfort in this time most people would spend grieving, but in which Colin is too engaged in running in his usual cycles of self-loathing and condemnation, like a hamster in its wheel, so to do. And after dark, I drove home, from one forest lit by a brilliant moon to my own neighboring forest lit by the same brilliant moon, and I thought about how seldom we're outside in the sun and the moonlight and the wind and the trees, and how much we're trapped inside a dank, sweaty cell we've built for ourselves, some of us, after sentencing ourselves to life imprisonment in there, feeling we richly deserve that sentence, and about how other people can find contentment and quietness and joy wherever they are, even in prison. Like the previous song, revisiting this one gave me serious trouble, remembering what chords and so on I'd done back then. I shouldn't have been surprised that it's pretty much the same three chords over and over again through verses and choruses, but there was one additional different chord tossed in periodically for spice. It took me a while to work out what I'd done back in the day. In the night came the call of a hound while I sat There is certainly humor hidden in a couple of wry bits of these lyrics, but on the whole, it was trying to be more arty and creative. And it sounds gothy and 90s and emo as hell to me now. Too meta, by far. I knew for this album, I wanted to get drums from both George and Evan, as each adds a special touch. The downside to Evan is being sent a pre-mixed wave file of the drums and not being able to turn things like snares or kicks up and down or individually work on EQing the sounds of individual drums. If you have a snare drum that's not crunchy enough, too bad. The downside to George is he's busy and hard to get a hold of, and he moved, so his music gear isn't set up. For the last album, George set his drums up at my place, and we made do with a big echoey high ceiling room and only my four mics. But George wanted to do better this time, insisted upon it. The plan was to email George guide tracks for the songs and have him email back the tracks from the individual drum mics so I could mix them all. Problem was, George upgraded his stuff, so of course, none of it is set up or working yet. It may take a while. So when George wasn't getting back to me, and the podcast episode with this song was looming, the pressure was on. Finally, George said his buddy Serge would record him playing on it and hopefully another two songs. So I drove to Serge's place. What I really needed on Sunday was a street address. What George gave me was, The studio is in the garage in the back of the church, which is on the north side of the river, just west of the bridge, sandwiched in between a fairy tale stack wall cottage and a big old stone mansion. Thing is, I found it just fine from those detailed instructions from George and I walked in and found a complete studio built from what would otherwise have been a spacious garage with more gear and set up better than studios I used in the 90s. Acoustic treatment was everywhere. No two walls were at right angles to each other. Instead of four drum mics, there were 12. When George was going to play snare, he had a choice of five. When it came down to guitars, there were about 10. What I was used to in terms of studio experience back in the day was paying people altogether too much money to care just enough about my song to help me record bits of it. This was something different. This was a guy wanting to use your music to experiment upon with new gear and so on. It was like he had the stuff and he was waiting for a chance to use it on something. In the 90s, I would occasionally run into a young drummer named Phil Bova Jr., and people told me with awe that Bova Sr. was designing a new kind of drum recording mic. 
and last weekend, mics 11 and 12 were Bova mics, little black spheres the size of melons on little tiny stands that held them just slightly off the floor. Every drummer I have ever worked with has balked at using a click track, wandering from it a bit if agreeing to use one at all, used to the band following his or her lead. George, for example, plays to the song with no click, and I mostly just replay my parts to his drums so they are locked in at all points in the song as well as we can manage. Well, there was no messing around with Serge. George had asked me to send him a guide track with no click track, and I'd done that, so Serge asked me for beats per minute and put a click track of his own right back on the song, and George stuck to it very well. George fussed over my odd song structure a bit, doing a bit of backseat songwriting, but figured it out, got his confidence together, got into the pocket, and slapped down drum parts for this week's song and one upcoming one, no problem. Serge wasn't feeling well, and George had stuff to do, or we'd have started on the third one as well. The plan is to get that one done soon, too. When I walked into Serge's studio, George sounded like this if you were just standing there and not listening with headphones with a bunch of mics. Now, George and I made do last winter with just four mics. Four of Serge's mics in more or less the same position as George and I used sounded like this. But Serge had doubled up by putting not only a mic on the snare, but one on top of the snare and a second one under it, and not only a mic on the kick drum, but one inside the kick drum and one outside of it, making six mics. But of course, you want mics picking up the toms and so on better than that. So with an extra four mics, two for toms and two for overheads, it sounded like this. Now I mentioned those two black little melon-sized globes just inside the door when you came in, bova balls they're called, worth between $1,500 and $2,000 each. Adding those into the mix added all of this space and room sound. I loved it. I was excited to take those 24 individual drum tracks home with me to drop into the songs, but Serge shyly asked for permission to run them through some phase-correcting plugins first. High-tech stuff. Serge mixed the drums down to a drum bus for me, putting effects and things on it and running it through a couple thousand dollars worth of equipment that I don't own, and that made it sound like this. It pretty much makes it sound very cohesive and solid and kind of glued together. But of course, then I had to monkey with it further to make it sound rougher and dirtier and more aggressive, making it sound like this. I'd had a pretty despairing and lonely, put-upon and moody-feeling weekend up to that point, but hanging out with the guys making music left me feeling great. 
and Serge is a high school teacher, so we bitched about school for a bit and felt all the better for it. I played bass as best I could. I did a sea of electric guitars all turned up way too loud. And a sea of voices. Sing a song, sing it loud as you dare for a woman with raven's wings in her hair and two eyes as black as night. And having turned the guitars up loud enough to make them continually feedback without me wanting them to, I was particularly pleased with jumping on an accidental feedback right when I was singing something about a hound and using the whammy bar to do a bar dive in imitation of a hound dog baying. In the night came the call of a hound. And because I seemed to have inadvertently created a little triad of songs for girls in the 90s that sound pretty friggin' 90s, I decided why not sneak in a little bit of that drum machine cheese to make this cohere with the other two. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. I was going to toss the rough acoustic guitar making this a 100% electric guitar fest, thinking of wah pedals and 70s porn guitar and even more feedback, but when I added one Nashville strung acoustic in to hear it, I found that as usual, I love the woody sound of the acoustic. I always find I love the combination of acoustic guitars with distorted electrics. threw in some percussion in the form of aggressively shaken shakers, a tambourine whacked with a drumstick, and the sounds from the drum machine. I was having a stupid amount of trouble staying on key for some of the notes and eventually put it together that this song, not only having a George annoying song structure with trick pretend build-ups before the actual choruses and a 5 and 2 rather than a 3 and 4 structure, actually has relatively few comfortable places to take a good breath while singing, so you end up not having as solid a lungful as you need for some of the quiet, low-held notes. So, having been lazy and mostly singing the rough vocals sloppily while standing up and playing the guitar too, but then sitting down at my desk with my good mic singing the better takes, I realized that I really needed to stand up and breathe a lot to land the vocals on this one. That worked much better than singing hunched over my desk. Duh. 
I left in the bit at the end where George bemoans playing the best take yet, but missing the very last note of the song. We kept the take because it was good, but we punched in the ending to fix it, which is weird now because I was videoing George on my phone as he played it. So on my phone, George screws up the last note and falls back in chagrin. But in the take, the ending is correct, yet George can still be heard bemoaning the missed note. In the end, I found weirdly I was thinking of All Star by Smash Mouth and Long Time by Boston, supplementing the Boston-sounding hand clap breaks from the drum machine with genuine hand claps, and what actually sounds better, knee slaps. where I keep them but when it came down to the words I walked into the night and this is what I heard I sing a song I sing it loud I have you It's 
like moonlight, just like moonlight.